Hello, everyone. I am here with 91-year-old Everald Compton, and we're here to discuss, a, um, to start off with, uh, another fellow old uh, political titan, for better or probably for worse, as we'll soon find out. Um, how are you, Ev, on this Thursday evening? Well, I'm fine, mate. I'm fine. I've got to tell you that I'm 92. You've chopped me off oh. by one year. You're right, you're uh, right. Henry, As of October. The fellow we're going to talk about, though, Henry Kissinger, uh, reached 100 and he died uh, today. And I think it's appropriate to me. You wouldn't have been even born when he was in his prime and, and doing his thing. Now, Henry, Henry, could I start off by saying Henry Kissinger was a an enormous figure on the world scene when he not only was the Secretary of State to Richard Nixon, he also was to President Gerald Ford. He also had other advisory positions. And uh, he was an enormous figure on the world scene. And he was a very skilled negotiator. Now, that doesn't mean uh, uh, that uh, he, he was uh, negotiating good things or doing good things. What I'm saying was the guy was a very skilled negotiator, even when he was advocating you know awful things and uh, but he was the sort of fellow that people loved him with a passion or hated him with a passion and there was no in between and i put a few tweets out this afternoon just saying he was a great negotiator i got accused of having a being a friend of a war criminal and all sorts of things so what's your impression of him not having lived in his era james well, exactly. I only know Kissinger from the history books and the information I read, but from what I read, um, you, you've got it bang on. Probably the architect of almost every atrocity and misdeed the United States committed from 1970 to about 2000, 2004, um, which is an enormous title. And so much of the world today that we live in is shaped by Kissinger's actions in that period be it his actions to promote America's intervention in the Middle East or America's carpet bombing of Cambodia, America's actions in Latin America in destabilising leftist regimes there or America's role in Vietnam. Um, he's got his hands, his fingers, had his fingers in all of these pies and all of these pies which shape the world today. So if you draw sort of a consistent thread through a lot of international diplomacy, um, again, from sort of 1970 onwards, my reading is it's not just America you can isolate as a key actor there, but like this one man who throughout the multiple presidents, multiple administrations, he had the year of Hillary and Bill Clinton, as well as Republican presidents too. So an enormously powerful figure who's responsible for so much of the world today, right? Yeah, but, but looking at another way, first of all, you, you've given a... a... A, a, an accurate description of all the things that involved in two things I want to say. While he was the most powerful title he ever had was Secretary of State, he, he was also Presidential Advisor and National Security Advisor. We have to accept, though, that all the things he negotiated with, he could only sign those documents, he could only do those things if the presidents that he was serving agreed with them. So if we bag Henry Kissinger, and he deserves bagging a number of things. We've got to bag every president he ever he ever worked for yep. in that regard, because they should have said to him, Henry, cut that out. Now, the main one that I took an interest in 
an interest in the bad words, the Vietnam War, which when I was in, in my middle years was an enormous event on the world scene that should never have happened. And he was a significant architect uh, of that war. Uh, he uh, always cloaked it in the making sure that the Vietnamese guys and the Chinese were the bad guys and he was the good guy trying to sort it out. He was a master at that. But I think the world, when they debate all that Kissinger did, it'll all revolve around the Vietnam War, which is probably the greatest blot on American history in my lifetime that 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 that, that happened. Yeah, and I mean, how do you think? Yeah, I again, I only know the Vietnam War from the history books, and I was sort of too young to um be engaged when the Iraq War was a thing because I was like two or whatever when nine eleven happened. And the wars immediately following that but um those two great american interventions in the past 50 years vietnam and iraq slash afghanistan in the early 2000s i think were both really pivotal um wars that at the time were controversial but had i think a a widespread um acceptance whereas nowadays when we look back on them and again, I know there were protests at the time and stuff, but I think their popularity was higher then than it is now because I, I don't think, you know, looking back on Vietnam now, I'd say a solid sort of, you know, 70, 80% of young people who know about the Vietnam War now think, wow, that's horrible. How could that ever happen? Um, and, and same about Iraq. But those wars at the time were a bit more popular. Not a lot more. I'm not saying everyone loved them. But um, it, it's crazy to think how, you know, when you think about it, like you say, Kissinger, his presidents, um, couple of a couple of people make these hugely important decisions, and so many lives all around the world are so affected. Yeah, but there was one thing that I impressed me in the door. Vietnam was a, a nation that had been a French colony for centuries. They'd been milked by the Frenchmen, then the Japanese got them. Then they finally got their freedom and then, then they broke out into a civil war. And America went into a fight with them. And America, with all its military might in that South China Sea, they had more boats and aircraft carriers. They'd almost run into one another. They could not beat these little guys who'd come out of the jungle and belt them and shrink back into the jungle. And the difference was, the thing that I remember was that the Vietnamese people... I'll be accused of saying I back communists and whatever you when I do this, but I believe that Ho Chi Minh, the leader, was more of a nationalist than he ever was a communist. But the point was this little country belted the hell out of the yaks. The Americans, with all that might, could not humble this little country. And now it's probably one of the more prosperous countries in in Asia, the fact was the little guys won that war despite Henry Kissinger. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's arguably a similar story um, right now with, you know, the, the, one of the big stories out of the Ukraine war is a similar similar sort of theme, right? Like a country which is far outgunned and outmanned, but their soldiers are fighting for something a lot more important than the invading soldiers uh, to as much as they can successfully resisting um, an invasion from a, at least on the face of it, much more fearsome and much more powerful foe, right? Well, true. And so I think Henry Kissinger leaves us with a, a, a legacy that uh, 
it tells us that we, in a democracy, the people have to finally have more say than they do. We've reached a point in life where governments tend to make decisions without adequate consultation uh, with, you know, with the people. And I think America has been a prime example of making a political decision, then trying to convince the public it was right instead of getting the public on side first. And I think that was a huge difference. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, I think we've talked on this show before about how undemocratic America is. Um, and, you know, I, I remember learning in my history classes the massive Vietnam War protests, you know, sitting alongside while the freedom rides were happening and the civil rights movement too. So that era where Kissinger was a really active participant in, in politics in that country was such a, a vital era, both in terms, terms of international diplomacy and that but also stuff happening domestically you know in australia in the 60s we had our civil rights movement too culminating the 67 referendum and the like so it was a really fertile time all around the world for for protest and disobedience and defiance of established order and stuff yeah well it's a the henry kissinger era is going to be debated for a long long time let's move to a thing that I'm not saying it worries me more, but a lot of things on the international scene worry me. The COP COP28 summit in Dubai, which is all about uh, climate change and, and, and global warming and how the nations of the world are going to combine together to do something. Now, we have these, these conferences that are held regularly, and I've never seen anything significant happen because everybody signs up to something in principle, and then they come back the next time and say, well, the principle didn't work. And, and I find them a, a hell of a lot of hot air, and I think Australia spends too much time trying to look as if it's doing the right thing instead of doing the right thing and ignoring what the world's going to. So I think COP28, these COP conferences, COP, I think they're, they're a waste of time. And this one is particularly cynical as being held in, in, in a country and in an area where those blokes sell oil. They sell oil that contaminates the world. And indeed, there's rumours going around that with some of the poorer nations that aren't keeping up with climate change and the cost of climate change, the, the oil guys are trying to tell them they'll give them cheaper oil if they'll shut up. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of skullduggery going on on the side. Am I getting too cynical, young gun? I think that that's a good word for it, skullduggery, because, yeah, there's certainly things going on at these summits where we get these pieces of paper, but ultimately what, what needs to happen is that the governments follow through. And as we've talked about on our show before, you look at all the countries around the world, China is going green really fast, and they've got a massive country to go green. And in, in recent years, it's incredible the strides China has made to going green, and they're continuing um, to do so. But in, in Western countries like Australia, um, I saw an interesting statistic last week, and anyone who drives regularly will probably have observed this, but it was looking at new car sales since 2010. And, and it was in The Guardian, and they said that um, if not for this massive boom we're having in SUVs, Australia could have um, lowered its motor vehicle emissions by 30% relative to where we are now if new car sales were of the same makeup that they were in 2010. But in the past 13 years, 
we've had this massive boom in big SUVs and big utes being sold and used by families um, who don't need them when previously sedans have sufficed and they've caused our motor vehicle emissions to be 30% higher than they should be. So that's just one example of, like you say, people going to these conferences with the best of intentions and then going back home and doing nothing about it. Um, and I think we're as guilty a party as anyone on that front. Well, I, I, I think that's right. But at least here on the local scene, Kenya Plipersec is tackling one issue, that's the lack of water in the in the Murray-Darling Basin system. Now, when I was a young lad, born in 1931, as you know, yeah. I was taught in school that the Murray-Darling, with all its tributaries, the Murrumbidgee and the Castlereagh and all the Namoy, all of those rivers, it was one of the great river systems of the world. It was always full of water. And the more my life went on, the less water was in them. We finally get to the point of the Darling River, which when I was a lad, always had plenty of water. And in fact, trading steamers used to go up all the way to Burke and take stuff out to the world. We'd have mud patches and slime and goo and, and uh, farmers taking far too much water out of the system, wars between the states as to who's pinching uh, the most water and so a water system which was one of the great water systems of my early years is now done now tanya plibersek's trying to start other people have tried before haven't got very far to have farmers use less water and and, and that part of that is the need for we need to study the dry farming techniques that a lot of countries around the world have to use because i think we we waste a lot of water in the whole situation but she's made an attempt she's had a been hit with a fair bit of flack from uh, the conservative side of politics but i get the feeling she's made a brave decision which i think has got a good chance of working it's not the ultimate decision but at least she's taken a step in the right direction hasn't she? yep and what, what was the biggest signifier to me because i'm obviously no expert in farming techniques and whatnot is that rex patrick came out in big support of this um and if anything, I, whenever I see a policy that has sort of broad consensus of agreement from the Greens to Rex Patrick, I think it's probably the right thing to do um, because Rex Patrick's a pretty common sense guy. We love Rex Patrick on this show. And um, when he's shaking hands with the Greens and saying, good job, everyone, I think we're probably on the right course. And you're absolutely right to point out it's these big farming and irrigation giants who use shed loads of water, um, just unnecessary gross depletive amounts of water which are running our rivers dry not just in, in the murray darling but all across rural and regional new south wales and those are the cartels the nationals basically exist to protect uh, am i am i am i too cynical no yeah well, look mate it's easy to get cynical in these you know in these this, this world but politicians tend to back legislation pushed by people or oppose legislation pushed by people who are their major donors. And I think when the Nats open their mouth, they're, they're on behalf of somebody who's given them some money for the next election, as all uh, ones do. Uh, and, and I think that there's great changes we need to make. Back when I was a boy, they started growing cotton all through New South Wales and southern Queensland. Or it gradually grew, I mean, over the years. Cotton is a thing that needs a lot of hot weather and a lot of water. Yet we're growing cotton down in areas that should be producing food for a hungry world. 
anybody with any sense would move the cotton industry all the way up to North Queensland where there's plenty of water running in the wet season where it's nice and hot, and, and we should relocate the whole cotton industry, but nobody will because nobody's got the political guts to do it. But it's ridiculous to be growing cotton in the Murray-Darling Basin, which is running out of water. That just doesn't make any sense at all. No, and I mean, one area where um, I can I know my dad worked on a, on a cotton plantation was in Wee War, um, yeah. in, in southwest New South Wales. And, well, if, if cotton needs, you know, heat and wet, you're absolutely right. We, we have plentiful heat and wet in this country, um, you know, pretty much everywhere north of Uluru. So, yes. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. So we can all, you know, get a bit cynical about that. But look, let's move on to another thing that's got nothing to do with that. You might recall uh, some months ago, an old lady, she was 90-something, uh, uh, was um, died as a result of police tasing her in a nursing home in in, in uh, Big. And now, now, you're a good law man is the reason you're a legal man. This little old lady... Uh, she had dementia. She was in the 90s. She was in a wheelie, had a wheelie. She pushed around so she wasn't mobile. And she, she had a knife and the police were called. Uh, she, her dementia was such she wouldn't have known what she picked the knife up for and what she was going to do. So two police arrived, confronted by a lady in a wheelie who's 98 and can hardly walk, and they decided the only action they could take was to taser her, and they just didn't hit her once either several times. When one of them could have gone round the back of her, another one in the front of her, and, and and just taken the wheelie away, and she would have been, you know, that good. But they tasered her, and she fell and hit her head, and she died. Now, originally, the policeman was charged with a reckless activity. Yesterday, the charge was raised by, must be the New South Wales government. She lives in Bega been changed to manslaughter. The guy is going to be charged with manslaughter now, which means a jail sentence. And so the issue is, is this an example of the fact that somehow or other we've got to stop the police uh, firing at will just because they're, they're in an incident? Now, policemen, I'm all in favour of policemen saving their lives when they're in an incident, but I don't reckon you're in an incident when you run across an old lady with a knife who's 98 and she's got a wheelie, I don't think that's a crucial life-threatening incident, is it? Yeah, so th this is all about the, the police regulations and what the police are and aren't allowed to do. We recently had this trial in New South Wales, a uh, criminal trial. A police officer was found not guilty of murder. Um, what he did was he, he was a corrective he was a corrective services officer, not a police officer, Ben the pardon, um, and he shot in the back several times at an unarmed fleeing inmate because New South Wales correctives are allowed by law even when they're not threatened um, and even when the inmate is unarmed to shoot the uh, to shoot a fleeing inmate in the back uh, several times with lethal force. Um, that is a and again they tried him for murder but the jury found well he was acting within the scope of his powers. So I think police powers reform is a really big cause um, that needs to be got behind. Yeah. Like that that little story I just told then, you can't do that in Queensland. Queensland police aren't allowed to do that to unarmed fleeing inmates. But New South Wales police are because the regulations say they can. And it's something that I think doesn't get enough spotlight because it's very opaque and hidden under regulations and mountains of laws and stuff. 
but it's it's certainly something that needs looking at um, because you know every, every life lost as a as a result of over policing and too broad police powers is a real tragedy. Well, 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 it is. Well, well how about we get on to? Uh, uh, I mean, it's an issue that I think I, I hope that you, being a good New South Welshman, can get those laws changed, man. Now let's look at some good or bad guys. It might take a little bit of time. My good guy of the week is Senator David Pocock, the independent senator, whom I think when he comes up for re-election in the ACT is going to get re-elected with the greatest landslide of all time. I've never known an independent to act so responsibly on so many issues and be across them so well and act with such dignity and not use crude language the way that gets around Parliament. Pocock is one of the blokes who's ensuring that the Tanya Plibersek's Murray Darling legislation goes through. He's involved in trying to get Australia's policy right in Palestine and and, and, and Israel. And, and every week you find that he is at the forefront of some, not a publicity thing, something that the nation requires and that he's done his homework on, he's done it right. I find him a refreshing addition to the Australian Parliament. No, I, I completely agree. I think the thing that always strikes me with David Pocock whenever he speaks is common sense. You know, when he came into the Parliament, he wasn't a super polished parliamentary speaker or debater. He wasn't as slick as someone like Scott Morrison was or, what, or whatever. He didn't have all those rhetorical tricks that Morrison would use or, or for that matter, most politicians use. But he was he's just so normal and common sense. He understands people, he understands um, needs, he understands what's good and bad about the country and what needs to be done to make it better. And if every parliamentarian took the same time and effort to learn those things and implement those things, we'd have a much more prosperous country. Well, who's well, your good guy, James? So, my good guy of the week is Chris Minns, New South Wales Premier. Um, cost of living crisis, housing crisis, mortgage crisis, etc. Etc. But the state government has just moved to upzone all areas around train stations um, to a more dense um, area of living. So more apartment blocks and high rises can be put in in and around train stations. Now, this is really sensible because while you don't want high rises and apartment blocks in areas with no transport links, because that'll just create really huge congestion when the people in those apartment blocks need to get point A to point B because they need to go by car. Putting big apartment blocks next to train stations is really good because the people don't need a car. They can just hop their nearby train station. And I think one of the biggest ways to solve the housing crisis that we have, aside from stuff like negative gearing and tax reform and that, is simply building more houses. But the question when we say build more houses is always where? Because, you know, like I said, if you build them in the middle of nowhere with no public transport and a 30-minute drive to a train station, you're just going to be causing really horrible traffic problems and not creating walkable suburbs. I live within about a kilometre of a train station. It is awesome to be able to just walk to the train station, walk to the shops, walk to my cafe, etc. So good on Chris Minns for promoting sustainable urban development in and around train stations uh, where it's much needed for people to be able to live a walkable life with amenities and all that sort of good stuff. I go along with that and it sounds good to me. And I'd even build housing above train stations. I'd put a skyscape above the station, <laughs> except the train drivers say, oh, what'll happen if a train blows up? Well, I mean, that, that's going to happen once in 100 years. 
So the people just had to walk down the steps to get a train or come down the elevator to get a train. That would be a hell of a good, good idea. So good on Chris Minns. Now, the bad guys of the week, uh, the Greek government has asked the British government to give back the Elgin marbles, a, a famous Greek piece of sculpture or whatever you want to call it, uh, and which the British pitched centuries ago and got it in a museum somewhere. And the Greeks have said, you guys got to give that back. You pinched it. Now, the British are only thinking about it because they make a hell of a lot of money in the museum where the marbles are and they don't want to lose the revenue out of that. But it highlights the whole thing about colonial Europe. Not only did colonial Europe go out and pinch land like they came here to Australia and pinch it, they pinched Canada off the Red Indians. They went around pinching land. They then pinched things and took them home. And I was only thinking in Parliament today, last week, when we had said, you know, we're sorry to uh, people who, who took those thalamidamine tablets Thalidomide. all those years ago became difficult, situ terrible situation in life. We said, sorry, the British and the French and the Germans and the Spanish and the Italians and all these people who plundered the world have never once said, I'm sorry. And I think the El Elgin Marbles thing, if only the British got up and said, we're sorry and we're giving them back, it would at least be the first sign that those colonial nations had a conscience, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I commend to everyone this series on the ABC. It's on catch-up. It's called Stuff the British Stole with um, Mark Stanell. It's a really good series, and he, he talks about, he goes around learning the history of all sorts of different artefacts around the world stolen by the British. Um as a colonial power. The first one's about the Kohinoor diamond, um, which they took from an Indian prince who was like 12 years old, got him to sign it away in a peace deal, said basically we're going to kill your family if you don't give us the diamond. Um, and then they sort of isolated him from his family anyway. And that's the diamond that's now in the, the British crown, the jewel in the crown, so to speak. It's a great series. And, of course, something like the Elgin Marbles, uh, it's named after Lord Elgin, who brought the marbles from then the Ottoman Empire to the UK. So with the Elgin marbles, it's even named after the British guy who stole Glad it. Glad you stole them. Yeah. <laughs> well, bad thing. So one day we'll get all those colonial nations saying they're sorry. Who's your bad guy of the week? Um, my bad guy of the week is Chris Minns, New South Wales Premier. Um, he, he did one <laughs> good thing this week. He's also done a bad thing. So Jeremy Buckingham from the Legalised Cannabis Party has introduced a bill to legalise small, very small personal amounts of cannabis for personal use. Uh, I support the bill because, as the statistics show, a lot of people's first interaction with jail comes from getting caught with pretty harmless, small personal amounts of cannabis. Now, I mean, what's bad about cannabis? It can have effects on your mind. It can slow your reaction time. Um, it can lead to poor health consequences if you have too much. All of those things are true of alcohol as well, and yet alcohol is legal and regulated. On the other hand, same thing with cannabis. It's, you know, if you're not smoking it, if you're just having it as little um, gummies or cookies or whatever, it doesn't cause any lung issues if you're having it like a baked way. Um, and unlike alcohol, cannabis doesn't really make people violent either. So if, if you legalise it, decriminalize it, regulate it, you know, can't drive all stoned or whatever, obviously. Um, you're going to be saving a lot of people from jail 
and you're going to be raising a bit of money for the government um, as well. Unfortunately, Minns has sort of said he's not acting on drug reform until mid-next year, which is a shame because I think the statistics were something like um, Indigenous offenders are getting rung up for cannabis possession charges at like seven times the rate of white offenders um, despite not using cannabis at any different a rate. So it's one of those areas where the police are really tough on marginalised groups and we see disadvantage in the cycle of prison and all that kicking off. And I think men should act on it sooner rather than later. Well, I'd go along with that. And I think a lot of the things that we ban for so-called moral reasons, if we can find out what good element is in it and use it in a moderate way, as you say, if it's no worse than alcohol, it's absolutely hypocritical for us not to have some yeah. restrictions on alcohol. And it's the hypocrisy of the whole thing. That yes, they well, James, we, we've had a good yarn, mate. And I think uh, there are other things we didn't even touch, like the way they're fiddling around with these detainee laws. We might know a bit about that next week. Uh, and yeah. I think there's a bit of the dust settles on what Parliament's going to do about that so we can cover on that. And there's all sorts of other things, such as what's going to happen over in the Middle East. But next, next week, we can have a look at where they are before, you know, as we enter the Christmas season. That'll be fine, but it's good to talk with you, and uh, we'll chat again next week, eh? Yeah, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ev. Um, an early episode for our loyal fans this week, so they'll have something to chew over on the weekend. Um, and talk soon. Good on you, and thanks a lot.